0: Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage Program, LawPay. The practice of law changed significantly in the past decade, and perhaps the biggest disruption arrived in March, when the coronavirus pandemic forced most lawyers to leave their offices and work remotely. There's been challenges and fears for the profession, as well as a necessity to quickly change the way something has always been done. That's hard for lawyers. As part of a special series, the ABA Journalist Asked and Answered is asking lawyers about how they've done it and what they think will come next. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and my guest today is Peter Huang. He's a law professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, and besides law and economics, his academic research focuses on happiness and mindfulness. Peter, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Stephanie.
0: Yes, so as a law professor, In terms of being mindful and finding happiness, how have you adjusted your teaching methods during the pandemic?
1: So I've been teaching remotely and through Zoom and through breakout rooms, which I actually think sometimes um, allow more thoughtfulness and reflection than the usual in-person experience of a live classroom.
0: That is fascinating, because to be honest with you, I've heard so many complaints from law professors about teaching through Zoom, um, and some of them it seems to be a struggle to figure out how to do things differently through the breakout rooms. Can you give me an example of how they've actually worked well for
1: you? Sure. Before I give you the example, I think what you said earlier does resonate that I think law professors, lawyers tend to be bound a lot by precedent and like mm-hmm. to do things the the way they've always been done traditionally. So anytime there's uh, innovation or novelty, sometimes it throws people off. But since we're all forced into this um, experiment, if you will, on a grand scale, a lot of us have to learn very quickly. And especially from around mid-March till the end of the spring semester, during the summer we had more training and we got more, I think, used to doing Zoom and, and doing breakout rooms. But one thing I found was when... When I had a live classroom, there was a tendency for certain students to be the ones who would always talk. And by having breakout rooms, you could mitigate that by having people um, have some time to reflect, not have a tendency or a feeling that they had to speak first as opposed to think about what they were going to say. I think too often the Socratic method, which I actually don't use a lot, but I think Certainly, uh, people still do, and when I teach first-year classes, I do because I think uh, students expect it, puts a premium on being quick uh, or fast to beat out your fellow classmates and not necessarily to be thoughtful. I, myself, was guilty, I think, of that when I was a one owl, And also, when you're um, not called on yet, you're thinking of what you would say if you're called on, so you're not really listening to the other students' answers. By having the idea of telling students, I want to ask a question, but I'm not going to ask for responses right away. I'm going to send you into breakout rooms to talk amongst each other and then pick someone to report and pick different people each time. There was, I think, more equality or equity in the participation.
0: That's interesting. I want to go back to something you just said about with the Socratic method, how it's supposed to teach you to think on your feet and to speak quickly. And that's kind of the opposite of mindfulness, but at the same respect, it seems like there's been some really great lawyers, like um, the first person who comes to mind is the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, one of the stories about her is if you were speaking with her, she may not answer your question as quickly as other people would, because she was thinking about it.
1: Yes, absolutely. There's actually a interesting video um, asking whether Socrates or, as Keanu Reeves' character would say, Socrates. Is sexist because <laughs> it puts a premium on speaking quickly as if you're on a game show and you're rewarded for speaking first, not necessarily if you're being right or being thoughtful. And I think certain cultures, certainly the one I was raised in as an American born Chinese, you're taught to sort of um, be more reflective and not necessarily to draw attention to yourself. And I think women and minorities in general sometimes are thinking about what they're going to say when some of their fellow students might just hit the buzzer first. Um, Sometimes, you know, students volunteer, other times the professor calls. So there's sort of like a Hunger Games aspect of fear that motivates people. So I think, you know, the example you give of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a great one. There are many um, lawyers and and, um, judges who are very eloquent, but they're not really people who are going to do well on a game show. And it's unlikely that any lawyer is going to have a Socratic dialogue with a judge because the judge is going to probably know less than the lawyer is about his or her own own case. So I think it is the case that the pandemic, horrible as it has been, has led to some what people call pandemic positives. One of them, I think, is lawyers and law students, especially realizing that through this new medium of Zoom and remote distance learning or teaching or interacting um, thoughtfulness is actually something that can be practiced easier than in person.
0: What are some other pandemic positives in the lot? I haven't heard that before. I love it.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great phrase because, it, you know, it's a horrible human tragedy, um, the pandemic, and probably not our last. But for a lot of people who I think are naturally half glass full, the pandemic has, I think, led to some other innovations, um, or opportunities. For one thing, we're commuting less, which is better for the environment. Um, I think we also can be more reflective because we have less of a schedule, if you will, more of a self-made schedule where we can be mindful in our eating, in our walking, in just everything we do. And, And I think really there's more time and space for us to not just so much... Uh, react in a knee jerk fashion, which we think, I think all of us have a tendency to do in our busy lives. But sometimes I think we're um, busy just for the sake of business. I recently saw a tenant, which I thought was complex for the sake of being complex. So I think this pandemic has slowed things down, sometimes against our will, but also given us a chance to think about what's really important in life and how we want to spend our time and who we want to spend it with.
0: Can you kind of walk me through? I mean, when it came to your attention that uh, let's start with the summer when you know, it was unlikely your classes would be in person in the fall, how did you foster within yourself uh, creative problem solving to think, okay, how can I teach in the fall that's going to be most benef- beneficial to my students and cause the least amount of pain for myself? What inspired you?
1: I guess it made me think about what are we trying to accomplish when we teach law students and teach people in general. And especially in the summer, as I mentioned before, as opposed to last spring, we had time. So there were a number of organizations, including the AAALS, uh, the Association of American Law Schools, that had weekly webinars, the University of Colorado Law School itself, uh, IT department and the university's IT department basically was very helpful in helping, helping uh, us learn sort of the uh, technical aspects of teaching remotely, but also the pedagogy or the androgogy, I guess, because we're teaching adults in law school. So the idea is to think more carefully, what are our learning objectives that we want to accomplish? And how is it that this remote way of teaching or the hybrid way of teaching would change that? In what ways could we engage students more? Could we maybe have more of a flipped classroom where they would watch things themselves on the internet and we could discuss them much more like a you know, PhD seminar. Um, how could we think about ways to uh, simulate practice environments or give them assignments where they could work in teams, which is something else I think we don't do enough in law schools compared to medical schools or business schools. So a lot of it is, as you were saying, just being creative and being forced to be creative because of circumstances.
0: In some ways, and maybe this could be a pandemic-positive was it kind of fun because it was different and it was an opportunity to think of how to do things differently, creatively and workshop ideas with your colleagues and just, you know, this is a challenge and this is how can we do this in a good way that hasn't been done before?
1: Absolutely. I think it sort of rejuvenated some people who, you know, sometimes teach the same course year to year, although even if you teach the same course the subject matter may change you know when there's a, a new tax laws that go into effect for myself, I um, had taught torts for a number of years uh, mainly because of the relationship between happiness and damages for tort victims but I was asked to teach business associations for the first time at Colorado for the second time in my life and going on listservs and talking to other people who've taught it and you know. Um, Emailing them and asking them, what are you thinking of doing, especially after the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, thinking of how can we incorporate some of these issues of structural systemic racism and sexism in our courses was really exciting and challenging. And I think led to many sort of innovations and people sharing ideas and being really, I think, rejuvenated by this whole um, novel opportunity.
0: So the unrest over the summer related to uh, the death of George Floyd and others who were killed by police. How did you, as someone who focuses on mindfulness, I mean, I feel like that was just on top of everything else, that was a really hard time for our country, especially if you were in a city that was experiencing unrest. Knowing what you do about mindfulness, you know, even though it was the summer, how did you deal with that as a professor? and work with your students if there was the opportunity to do so.
1: So there wasn't as much opportunity because, as you know, most lost um, students don't go to summer school. Um, yeah. However, you know, some students did reach out and what I would do is, you know, say to them that or, or uh, email them more precisely about how the practice of mindfulness helps calm. I think a lot of us felt stress, anxiety, not knowing uh, when or if COVID-19 would end. Uh, not knowing whether the political unrest and the social unrest was something that was the new normal, and just feeling um, somewhat, I guess, lost at sea, sort of feeling unmoored. And so I would remind them that mindfulness is a practice that helps ground you. It reminds us that we're all human, it reminds us that all of us have fears, anxieties, and these are just uh, feelings they're not us and we may have thoughts but as people often say when teaching mindfulness the thoughts are like clouds in the sky or like cars in the road you can just watch them pass by so I think that was helpful there was also the bar exam which I think a lot of students are stressed about and you know whether they could you know not um, have to take a bar exam or whether they were taking one remotely there were just so many new things coming us coming at us all at once as you say that it was some somewhat overwhelming
0: and when you say mindfulness that can be a lot of different things. Are you talking about meditation? Are you talking about yoga or something else or maybe neither or everything or both? What What are some examples of ways to be mindful besides listening and taking things in?
1: So I love that question. Yeah, I think that's great because I think mindfulness has taken on a lot of meanings and people sometimes even now talk about mindfulness. That how making um, mindfulness. Yes, uh, <laughs> so like everything else in our great American society, mindfulness has become commercialized. And you know, there's a lot of traditions. I happen to be Chinese, and my mother, um, my mother's mother, my maternal grandmother was Buddhist. But um, and so she every day practiced mindfulness with uh, what are they called? They're not rosary beads. They're a, um, I forget the exact name, uh, but they're beads that she would you know keep track of to count or to say something like a mantra. But, and, and there are other religious traditions, but also you can have a secular form of mindfulness. And as you say, mindfulness in its simplest definition is just sort of paying attention to life as it unfolds, but also paying attention in a very intentional, compassionate, and deliberate way, but also non judgmental way, which is where I think often law students and lawyers have difficulty because we're taught to judge things. And it's not to say, We're not discerning, which I think is different than judging. Oh, I like that. I hate that. This is good. This is bad. But just sort of watching things unfold. Um, This is how life is unfolding. You may not like it, which may be because you've been discriminated against and and you should do something about it. But as it's happening, just realize this is what it is and notice your thoughts, feelings, and body sensations. And as you say, you can practice mindfulness anywhere, you know, and it's just paying attention. And I think law students are very good at paying attention. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten to law school. And meditation, I think, is really practicing mindfulness, trying to focus your mind on the breath or on the world around you. And it doesn't mean emptying your mind of thoughts. You're going to have thoughts come into your mind, but just sort of not identify with the thought, just to let it go. And and I think there's many different kinds of mindfulness practices. Like one of them is loving kindness mindfulness, where you wish yourself peace and safety wish your friends and family and loved ones but also wish someone who's been difficult and then wish all humanity all carbon-based life forms so i think of it as sort of concentric circles and i think of it as you know there you have to meet the student where they come from so some people you know want to understand the historical spiritual you know uh, traditions of mindfulness other people just want to learn about mindfulness because they've heard it helps them be less anxious or sleep better or um, less, be less depressed. Other people want to learn mindfulness because they think it's going to make them more productive, more efficient. So you have to meet the student wherever he or she's coming from and say, look, mindfulness, as you put it, is many things to many people. It's not one thing. You really can't do mindfulness wrong because if your mind is wandering and you notice it, you've succeeded.
0: And we talked about what happened over the summer, and there weren't a lot of students on campus What about in more recent times? How have you dealt with things, both on January 6th uh, when people were trying to storm the Capitol and uh, tomorrow? we were recording this on uh, January 19th. And tomorrow is the presidential inauguration, which also has some people on edge.
1: Yeah. So uh, my first class was last Monday, and um, I said to my students, I would be remiss if I just pretended... You know, things were normal and just marched through my syllabus, which I prepared in December. I said, having thought about things, especially going to the annual meeting of the Association of American Law Schools and attending a number of sessions, it's important to mention to people, look, we we are living in times which are kind of difficult for many people from, I would say, almost all people. Um, I forget exactly the Chinese saying, I think it's, may you you live in interesting times, both a blessing and a curse, Mm -hmm. right? So these are certainly interesting times, times when um, many things have happened that no one thought would happen. On the other hand, as I often tell my nieces and nephews, you can't control what happens in the world. All you can control is how you respond to what happens. And so this is really an opportunity to practice being mindful, to not get caught up in sort of... Um, hate, anger, fear, but to think about the fact that um, we're all, you know, sharing a planet and, you know, we should be kind and compassionate to ourselves and to others. So both in my, I'm teaching two classes this semester, both in my economic analysis of law, which is more traditionally, you know, about efficiency and other sort of economic concepts. I've put in some stuff about economics of human rights, economics of sexism and racism, but also I've explained to them, A lot of cognitive biases that people talk about are forms of mindlessness and therefore being mindful helps you reduce these biases. Uh, There's evidence that being mindful helps reduce uh, racism, discriminatory behavior and ageism. And in my other class, Lawyers and Leadership, uh, one of the giants in um, the field, Deborah Rowe, passed away. And I was saying she passed away when she was 68. And I said, wow, that just, I guess, emphasizes to us how precious life is and how much she accomplished in her life that I thought she was much older.
0: Yeah. I mean just for I think mean, that's what everyone said. Just for listeners, if you weren't familiar with her, that you mentioned Deborah Rohde, who was the famous Stanford Law School scholar, who died, I believe it was two weeks ago at the age of sixty eight. And I like you assumed she was much older because she'd accomplished so much in life. Um I'm curious too are you seeing, I can imagine where during the pandemic, you were seeing a certain resilience among your students. Is that correct?
1: Yes, definitely. I think um, they were demonstrating a lot of grit and resilience, given the fact that many of them had other responsibilities, had children to care for, had parents, older parents to care for, had uh, spotty Wi-Fi connections. But we all got through.
0: Yes. I look at the bar passage rates for that. October bar and some of the July in-person bars. And I think almost across the board, everyone's bar exams, pass rates were really up. When That was, you know, not diminishing the concerns that test takers had, but it they sure, a lot of them did, I think, perhaps a lot better than they thought they could.
1: Yeah. I mean, this came up in a lot of our listservs about, you know, what exactly are we testing people when Mm we have them take a bar where it's closed book, which would be malpractice to practice law that way. Um, I myself took the California bar, I remember it was a three-day adventure, and I took the six-week class Mm -hmm. before. So I agree with you. But uh, um, and I do think, I think it was Derek Bach, former uh, dean of Harvard Law School and president of Harvard University, who said this, for those who can afford it, there's way too much law. For those who can't, there's way too little. And he said this many years ago, and it's still true today. So I think one of the things, again, hopefully a pandemic positive, is that we're all more compassionate and rethink legal education and the legal profession to make it more affordable and more accessible to everyone.
0: Mm. Now, let's take a quick break. Your law school bio says that you try to help people be innovative problem solvers. And when we come back, I want to ask you of, about some examples of innovative problem solvers during the pandemic. We'll be right back. Make 2021 your best year yet by getting started with LawPay, a proven and trusted solution. LawPay offers a simple, secure way to accept client payments from anywhere. Because LawPay understands the unique compliance requirements placed on attorneys, the solution was developed to correctly separate earned and unearned fees and protect IOLTA accounts from third-party debiting. Visit lawpay.com ABA to learn more. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and you're listening to a special series of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, which looks at how lawyers are dealing with professional and personal changes brought by the coronavirus. Joining me today is Peter Huang. He's a law professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, whose academic work focuses on business, law, emotions, and happiness. Professor, so you help students become innovative problem solvers. Can you give me some examples you've seen during the pandemic of how attorneys are being innovative problem solvers?
1: Sure. What I try to do is help them become innovative problem solvers. Whether I succeed, I don't know, because as you say, it's often hard to To know after the students leave law school unless they keep in touch and some students have and and one of the things they have expressed is this idea that mindfulness has helped them see connections they otherwise would not see because I think typically we put things in silos and pigeonhole things like even the way we teach law is uh, do you teach torch or do you teach contracts do you teach whatever fill in the doctrinal uh, doctrinal area as opposed to I'm interested in emotions, whether they occur in constitutional law and free speech or in securities regulation in terms of irrational exuberance, um, because that's just not the way we think about law. We think of these the areas. And there's been some research showing that um, mindfulness, at least in definition, that there's two common ones. One is the one we've talked about earlier, sort of unfolding, watching life unfold in an intentional, deliberate, compassionate way. That's John Kabat-Zinn. Who is the um, developer or inventor of mindfulness-based stress reduction. The other definition is actually uh, Ellen Langer, who I believe was the first uh, woman to be tenured in the psychology department at Harvard. She's written a lot about mindfulness, and the way she describes mindfulness is to think about novel connections, to see things from different perspectives, um, which is, I think, a lot of what we mean, or some people mean when they say teaching students to think like a lawyer. So certainly I think this summer... Um, students were trying to figure out ways to get the usual summer internship job experience that they normally get between the second and third year of law. And I got some emails about how people thought of novel ways to um, develop a portfolio of experience that they could provide prospective employers, especially since last spring. A lot of courses, at least at Colorado, we decided to grade um, pass you know, not use letter grades. So I think that's the idea that mindfulness allows you to see connections and to not be so rigid and and to see other ways of accomplishing the same goal or think about what your goal really is. And uh, people often say what you measure is what you treasure. I'm reminded of, uh, I think it was on Letterman, there was a joke when he said, we're hopelessly lost, but we're making good time. Well, how would you know that if you don't know where you're going or where you are?
0: And what about what have you seen on that front among practicing lawyers, either the people you know or maybe attorneys you've read about or just trends you've observed about being an innovative problem solver during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I think even the idea of virtual trials and most of my um, fellow students in law school are practicing lawyers and they've had to adjust and change a lot of the traditional routines that they've been used to for decades. And I think, uh, as you mentioned before, having COVID come so unexpectedly and not knowing how long it's gonna last has has made people rethink exactly how can we deliver legal services in this new sort of remote way that none of us were trained to do and even thought about doing even a year ago.
0: Like you said, for some professors, it's been an exciting time because you have these new challenges to approach creatively. Are you seeing that among practicing lawyers as well?
1: I think so. I I think it is an exciting time. I think uh, one thing that will come about after the pandemic ends, whenever that is, if it ends, I think some people want it to go back to normal. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I know some people have talked about building back better, but I do think the pandemic has raised the issue of whether we need business trips as much or conferences for law professors when we can do a lot of things remotely, saving on the cost of travel, the sort of uh, carbon footprint and just um, being more, how should I put it, practice that sort of emotional intelligence, which. Sometimes you can read facial expressions easier in person than on Zoom, but learning that sort of picking up signs, picking up body language through Zoom, sort of client interaction, all these things are things that are going to be different and and maybe for longer than just temporarily and perhaps for the better.
0: Speaking of Zoom, do you have any advice for being mindful in Zoom meetings? I think during the pandemic, we've all sat through some crazy Zoom meetings that we just needed uh, to decompress afterwards.
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the uh, phrase Zoom fatigue is real. Um, I think as human beings, we're not really meant to interact this way. On the other hand, I do think someone pointed this out, so it's not original to me. At a conference, now you see everyone uh, either by their you know name or by their picture. Whereas in person, people often look at your name tag to see what school you're at and what, what the ranking of the school is to decide whether they want to talk to you. Now it's much more democratized. Um, to have just faces and it is the case I think as you say there's some meetings which are tiring or bizarre but also that raises the question do we want to have so many meetings Um, because I think Zoom has really highlighted the fact that if you're teaching and going to committee meetings and faculty meetings all on Zoom maybe we should try to do things as quickly as shortly as efficiently as possible as opposed to having a meeting just for the sake of having a meeting.
0: Do you think, too, on Zoom, assuming that you don't have hundreds of people in the room, you can really sit back and watch people's faces while they're listening to kind of read where people are at, where it seems to me it's harder to do that in a staff meeting. And you can kind of keep maybe it's a little bit easier to keep a poker face in Zoom than if you're in an actual meeting.
1: Yes, I agree. There's actually been some research by Rachel Croson, and co-authors about like people negotiating online versus in person. And as you say, if you had hundreds of students, it's difficult, even when I had 39 students for business associations, it's hard to see everyone in one big, um, I'm gonna date my age now, Brady Bunch box or Hollywood Squares box. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I, ha- like right now, I think I have 19 students and 12 students in the seminar. So it's much easier to sort of have a relaxed atmosphere. atmosphere. We all see each other and we see each other close up. We see our faces. Um, as opposed to like, at least for me, because I'm nearsighted, I have to wear glasses and I don't want to you know, stare at people. But this way, when you're on Zoom, you see everyone's face. And if someone sort of makes an expression like they're confused or they're not sure what's going on, you can say, you know, does anyone you know, want to ask a question? Is this clear? Because it's easier to pick up on these kinds of um, um, emotional cues than it is, I think, sometimes when people's faces are not in front of you on a large screen.
0: Right. And if you're having a moment, you can just turn off your video and say, oh, I'm having Wi-Fi problems.
1: Yes. Yes. (laughs) I've done that. And some of my colleagues have done that. So, (laughs) yes.
0: (laughs) You said that people want things to go back to normal and you don't think things will go back to normal as we know it. Why do you say
1: that? Because I think for better or for worse, a lot of legal practice is driven by economics. Right. And so and legal education. So now that people have seen that professors can hold meetings remotely. And I've attended more conferences than I ever had because I didn't have to leave my living room or office, right? I could go to Australia, New Zealand, um, talk to people in Singapore at basically very low costs except for my time, right? And so that has convinced, I think, college and university administrators that our travel budgets should be less. And people used to combine like a conference in Hawaii with taking their family. Now they should just take their family if we ever go back to air travel. So I think some of those things are going to be driven by economics. The fact that people can remotely work, you know, means they free up their commuting time. I think some of these things are just things that people may have experimented with, but they were forced to and they saw, you know what, productivity didn't necessarily drop or people actually did better in the bar. So maybe the old ways of doing things are not necessarily things we have to return to.
0: Mm, Very interesting. What do you miss about life pre-pandemic?
1: I I do miss seeing people in person, although I think sometimes that's overrated because I was thinking about this in terms of legal education. Um, People talk about synchronous versus asynchronous and sort of um, there's this human connection. I believe it was Christina Paxson, the president of Brown, who talked about having a debate in person is very exciting. Uh, which I agree with, but being dead after the debate from COVID is not so exciting. So um, I don't know. The human connection, I'm writing a paper, co-authoring a paper with someone uh, named Olivia Ash, who's done some research on loneliness. She actually has done the first survey of law student loneliness. So loneliness, I think, is something we've all experienced together, ironically, during COVID. And many people feel loneliness. I think there's a stigma or taboo about talking about loneliness because it seems like if you're lonely... It's your fault. So I think maybe we've learned through COVID that we have more in common. And the things that I miss are sort of things that I now think, you know, were they really crucial or uh, as essential as I thought they were? They're certainly important. I think human connection is always important. I think having a client and a lawyer interact in person is important. But sometimes people are more willing to share, as you say, over Zoom with their video off. They might be more willing to disclose something they would feel uncomfortable doing in person. So I, 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 I'm I, not sure. I mean, I think certain things are different, certainly, and and whether they're good or bad is harder to tell.
0: What are some things you don't miss about life before the pandemic?
1: I don't miss commuting, even though I didn't have a long commute. It was a mm-hmm. 10, 20 minute commute from Broomfield to Boulder. I don't miss sort of a lot of things that are sort of like um, frictions, I guess, or to use the language of law and economics, transaction costs. Um, just, you know, the, the things that we now do remotely so that um, it doesn't seem as um, costly, even though it's costing a different way, um, you know, time versus money. But I think a lot of people, the optimal commute time, a lot of people don't like commuting, but the optimal commute time is not zero. Some people need that time between work and home to sort of decompress and to sing out loud, you know, to the radio or the CD. So, um, but I think you can do that, you know, you can just go to another room and if you have another room to sort of, you know, decompress and then have time to spend with your partner or family or kids. I mean, I do think we talk a lot about work-life balance and this is something that the pandemic has um, certainly changed. I, myself, personally, I think have had more time to think about other things, especially as a a law professor. And I think as lawyers, we tend to work a lot um, because we enjoy our work, even though lawyers bill and law professors don't. I may be lying awake at night, not being able to sleep, thinking about, you know, how can I make this class more relevant or exciting or thinking about new topics I can introduce that, have been raised by the pandemic or about the social unrest or the political unrest. So I think given the chance, some of us would work all the time, which is not ideal for us or for our partners and and families.
0: Right. That's everything I have for you today, Professor. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Stephanie. I really enjoyed it.
0: Me too. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.